This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Tegan Taylor. Today, the link between what you eat and your mental health, avoiding over-treatment for breast cancer, predicting your risk of osteoarthritis, and if your body was structured in a way that made cancer screening more difficult, would you want to know? In the United States and in Western Australia, women are routinely informed if their breast screen shows that they have dense breasts. It's not abnormal, but it can make mammogram results harder to read, and it is associated with an increased risk of breast cancer. But a new Australian study says we shouldn't necessarily be telling all women about their breast density as a matter of course, because it can have downsides too. Researcher Brooke Nicholl told me why earlier. Brooke, thanks so much for joining us on The Health Report. Thanks, Tegan. Thanks for having me. So shouldn't women be informed about things pertaining to their body just as a general rule? So, yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right. So we know that women and um, consumers here in Australia, from our previous qualitative work and from advocacy, um, want to know about breast density. So we're interested in conducting this work to better understand the possible impact that this information may have on a widespread national level here in Australia. Okay, so it's more at the population level. So what are the sorts of population level trends that might be concerning to you? So breast density is one of a number of independent risk factors for breast cancer, and it also has the ability to lower the sensitivity of mammography, meaning that it makes it harder to see tumours on mammography in women who have dense breasts. However, what we're... um, concerned about is that the issue right now is that we currently don't know what to tell women who have dense breasts and there's no clinical proven pathway. So there's no evidence that increasing screening intervals or adding supplemental screening, so things like ultrasound or MRI to mammography in women with dense breasts improves long-term outcomes on a population level related to breast cancer. And, you know, it can also have harms, including false positives, and the potential overdiagnosis and overtreatment of breast cancer. Can you talk about overdiagnosis and overtreatment? Because if you're diagnosing something, isn't that a good thing? Yeah, so overdiagnosis is diagnosing a condition that would not actually cause harm if left undetected or untreated. Now we're seeing in some uh, cancers, including breast cancer, that we're overdiagnosing women or men in other conditions such as prostate cancer and thyroid cancer with conditions that may not actually have harmed them in the long term. So why is breast density in the conversation at the moment? What's prompted this? There has been some consumer advocacy here in Australia, as well as the screening services really wondering what approach to take in terms of notifying women of their breast density. So currently in the US, women are notified of their breast density, and that came about over about a decade of advocacy and movements from industry and consumers wanting the right to know. So other screening programs across the world now are wondering what best to do in their current context and how the benefits of informing women about breast density will outweigh the harms. What's the status quo in Australia? So currently there isn't really a status quo. In WA, they've been informing women about their breast density for a number of years now. But in other states, Like I said, they're contemplating whether or not to inform women and how best to do so. 
people are not a homogenous group. We actually had research on the health report a few months ago about medical maximizers or medical minimizers that when you give people information about their health or their risk factor that some people are more prone to seek out more treatment and some people are less interested in seeking out treatment. How does that play with the work that you're doing around breast density specifically? Absolutely. So we have been looking at something similar. So our current trial that we ran looked at whether or not informing women leads to psychological outcomes, screening outcomes, and intentions to speak with doctors. So what we found by randomizing women to either receive breast density information or not, that significantly more more women who received this breast density notification are likely to seek supplemental screening. They're more likely to have higher levels of anxiety and feel more worried about cancer generally, and also more likely to speak with their GPs. So as you said, everyone is different and receiving information can be taken differently. But we're, what we're really interested in is trying to find out whether on a population level, informing women about their breast density and notifying them, the benefits can, can outweigh the harms of doing so. On the health report, we're constantly telling people to speak to their GP. Why are you putting this in a potentially negative category for the purposes of this research? So speaking with your GP, it's not so much a negative thing, but because the evidence around breast density is still lacking in terms of the long-term outcomes and what women with dense breasts should do, when it's being placed back on the GP, it makes it difficult because there are no clear guidelines or evidence for them to tell women what to do. So because it is so uncertain, we just want to know what the impacts will be for women and for GPs if this was to be rolled out on a national level. So it's something that is already in play in the United States. Australia is an opportunity, I suppose, because we don't do it routinely here. What are your recommendations at this stage based on what you found? Our trial highlights that notifying women could have some cons or harms in terms of psychological impact. It demonstrated also a potential impact to health services in terms of supplemental screening. So more women may go seek ultrasound or MRI or want additional um, mammography between their regular scheduled screening. And as I just mentioned, in terms of GPs, the burden of this issue might fall on them to discuss and navigate with women without clear guidelines or evidence. So what we found and what this trial has showed is that there are some potential harms or cons that the screening services need to be aware of and understand before they begin notifying women on a population level. And really to understand, you know, how the information will be received by women and and that it's accurate and balanced when presenting that. Brooke, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Dr. Brooke Nicholl is an NHMRC Emerging Leader Research Fellow at the University of Sydney's School of Public Health. And staying with breast cancer and perhaps the other side of the screening coin, if you're diagnosed with breast cancer and it's caught early on, your chances of survival are excellent. Your doctor will almost certainly recommend surgery to remove the cancer plus some radiation therapy to stave off the slim chance that the cancer may come back. But radiation comes with side effects. And while many people are willing to go through whatever it takes to make sure cancer is well and truly gone, a new study has shown there may be an easier way. One of the investigators was Bruce Mann, who joins me now. Welcome, Bruce. Thank you, Tegan. Tell us about the trial. 
So the trial we did is the PROSPECT trial. It was um, sponsored by Breast Cancer Trials, the Australian and New Zealand Cooperative Trials Group. And our observation was that if you select a very apparently low-risk group, that's patients with small cancers that are not in the lymph nodes, do surgery and don't radiate, the risk of recurrence in 10 years is about 10%. Now, as well as that, we've known for a long time that if you do an MRI scan at the time of diagnosis uh, where a patient has an apparent single cancer, then an additional cancer or precancer is found in 10 to 15% of cases. No one's ever shown that doing these MRIs has been useful because people have been treated normally with radiation. But our hypothesis was that perhaps it's the additional lesions that weren't seen on a mammogram but can be seen on an MRI that are the cause of uh, the local recurrences in patients who don't have radiation. And that led to the trial, which was we would do the MRI and if it was clear that the cancer was a single unifocal cancer and at pathology it was low risk, then those patients were treated without radiation. Uh, we ran this trial. It was a multi-centre trial, but mainly at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. Uh, over seven years, 443 patients had an MRI. We found an additional cancer or precancer in 11%, which is what we predicted. And in 201 patients who uh, fitted the criteria and were treated without radiation, uh, at five years, only a single patient had a local recurrence and a second patient had one at seven years, which was far less than uh, would have been expected had uh, the whole group not had radiation, suggesting that our hypothesis may be correct and this may be a way of identifying a group who can safely avoid radiation. So it's that same 10%. You're predicting that the 10% that would have gone on to have recurrent cancer is perhaps the same 10% that come up with a hidden cancer on MRI. So why isn't MRI routinely involved uh, when you're preparing to give someone surgery? Yeah, so MRI, these, these numbers have been known, but when patients are treated normally... By adding the, the results in these very early cancers, as you said earlier, are excellent. And adding the MRI was found to delay the time to surgery, to increase costs, and in some series increase the chance that a woman would undergo a mastectomy without improving the outcomes. And therefore, it's the, the recommendation is not to do it routinely because, as far as we know, no one has ever put those two facts together and tested the idea that maybe it's those hidden lesions that cause the recurrence rather than something special about the cancer that one already knows about. So can you, you did mention it briefly before, but what kind of cancers are we talking about here? We're talking about people who are diagnosed for the first time, it's not in their lymph nodes, it's a particularly, it's an existing yeah. low risk group. So, so the group were paid, uh, women over 50, uh, whose cancers were less than two centimetres in size, not in the lymph nodes, and not the nasty triple negative type who that, that seemed to behave much more aggressively, and some minor things, no invasion of the lymph vessels within the tumour and not a lot of precancer. These are uh, quite common cancers uh, that are found through breast screen and... Um, yeah, it is, it is a large group of, of women who have these cancers each year. 
I mean, it's all well and good for an oncologist to say, oh, this one's this one's like not a bad one. But if you're the person who's been diagnosed with breast cancer, you're probably freaking out a bit. Sure. Where's the balance with with wanting to sort of really kill something dead and over-treating? Yeah, I think this is, this is a really, really good point. And it's why this type of research is very difficult. It's like some people call it de-escalation or perhaps optimization research. Um, everyone recognises that a lot of patients are cured without the additional treatments, but you have to be able to prove that. And so to do a trial to show that less treatment is as good as standard treatment is actually quite difficult. It takes brave patients who are, are prepared to do it. But our experience was that many patients were very keen to um, have uh, to reduce treatment if it, if it seemed to be safe. Uh, unfortunately, it has seemed to be safe. What's the next step with this? You say it's 200 patients, most of them were from a single centre. Yes. Yeah, so a trial like this, before it really changes practice, we do need to make sure that it's not a one-off, that it can be replicated. So we need to extend the follow-up of the patients on Prospect, but also we need to follow it up with a multi-centre study, hopefully around Australia and New Zealand and hopefully some international sites to show that this is something that can be uh, replicated generally uh, before it could be considered any type of standard care. Right, right now it's experimental, but it's very promisingly, uh, the, the initial results are, are very promising. We'll watch with interest. Bruce, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Tegan. Bruce Mann is Professor of Surgery at the University of Melbourne and Director of the Breast Tumor Stream within the Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre. I'm Tegan Taylor and you're listening to RN's Health Report. Mental illness will affect almost half of adults at some stage in our lives and the drivers are complex. On the Health Report, we've discussed its relationship with the immune system, tobacco and exercise, just to name a few. Let's add another into the mix. Nutrition. We know it's good for our body, but evidence shows it's good for our mind too. And the peak body for dietetics in Australia wants nutrition help to be covered by Medicare in mental health plans. Here to talk about the evidence is Rochelle Opie, a dietitian who specialises in mental health. Welcome, Rochelle. Hi, Tia. What do we know about the relationship between diet and mental health? So from around 2009, research into diet and mental health shifted the focus away from looking at single nutrients and individual foods to really a more whole of diet, dietary patterns approach. And really, that's more representative of how people actually eat. And so observational studies um, show that healthy dietary patterns like a Mediterranean diet are associated with reduced risk of depressive symptoms or clinical depression. And poor diets can also be detrimental to mental health. In 2012, oh, sorry, yep. Yeah, yeah, go. I, I was going to ask you about the study that I think you're about to talk about, the yep, one that you yep. actually ran. <laughs> so, yeah, in 2012 um, is where I commenced my PhD in the SMILES trial. It's one of the world's first randomised controlled trials to test dietary improvement as a treatment option for clinical depression. And it was a 12-week intervention where the diet group we called the Modified Mediterranean Diet achieved significantly greater improvements in depressive symptoms and a staggering third of the individuals in the dietary intervention group achieved remission of depression compared to only 8% of the control group. Right, so it's a small trial. It's hard to do these sorts of things at scale but pretty robust results. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, now we've got meta-analytic um, evidence 
from other randomised controlled trials, which is consistently demonstrating that dietary interventions significantly reduce depressive symptoms. Right. So you saw, you're talking about dietary interventions. So is, is there a directional relationship? Like is it poor mental health is going to lead to a poor diet or is it the other way around? Yeah, so I think, yeah, looking at chicken or the egg, um, using randomised control trials, um, certainly in the SMILES trial, what we did was we recruited individuals with pre-existing clinical depression. And what we did was we then tried to treat them through improved diet quality. So we recruited individuals with poor diet quality at the start. And so if we changed their diets to a better quality, what did that do? And we saw huge improvements. Um, so I think in that way, we're able to see causality more so, um, whereas the observational studies can be more challenging to, to look at that. And, and that was then repeated in other randomised controlled trials here in Australia as well, something like HealthyMed and the AMED study have also included clinical um, populations. So what's the current state of play with dietetics and mental health plans in Australia? Yeah, so um, that's what um, Dietitians Australia are really trying to work on at the moment, um, that they're requesting for a creation of the Medicare um, benefit scheme item relating to depression and other mood disorders, um, really to get accredited practising dietitians um, on that agenda and getting immediate referrals um, for dietitians, the people who prescribed antipsychotics and other psychotropic meds where there are known metabolic side effects. Um, because at the moment, individuals with mental disorders we know that we've got um, typically unhealthy diets in comparison to, say, the Australian Dietary Guidelines, but a small number of these individuals can actually um, access private dietitians. Right. So it's not just about um, the benefit that would come from it, but it's also the gap in people's resources when it comes to actually accessing this yeah, sort of help. Absolutely. We really want to um, reduce that barrier for individuals to access the service that they so desperately need. I mean, with respect, doesn't every allied health field want this though? Like what is it about dietetics that you think is particularly important, why it should be prioritised? Yeah, interesting. So again, evidence is showing that um, dietary interventions that are delivered by an accredited practising dietitian are more likely to be effective. Um, and we've also got data to show that um, these interventions are also cost effective. So there's real benefits there. Um, but also that accredited practising dietitians, you know, these are the ones that have got the actual skills and training to support individuals to um, break down the barriers to eat well. Um, and I think, you know, that's extremely important because we know that just providing information is unlikely to achieve behaviour change. Right. So what's the relationship look like? You know, what would be an optimum amount of treatment? You're not, this isn't a relationship that you see someone every week for the rest of your life. It's a, it's a short-term intervention. Yeah, I mean, this is the sort of stuff that we'd need to continue to look at. But um, certainly from the SMILES trial, what we saw that it was a 12-week intervention um, where we had seven sessions that were run weekly and then fortnightly. Um, and they were long consults, so on average about 50 minutes. So what we'd expect is that you would need to have roughly around seven sessions and the time frame, you know, that's I think we'd want to make sure that you're at least providing three months of service um, and then for sustainable changes that, you know, potentially offering that for at least a year to see um, what benefits that that can achieve. And how does it play with prescription of medications and those sorts of things? Yeah, I mean, I think with prescriptions of medication is that um, we, we're not saying that this is um, instead of, it may be adjunct, you know, it's certainly something that we need to explore further. Um, but we know that medications have, you know, side effects like antidepressants um, can 
you know, result in sexual dysfunction and dissatisfaction, which can then impact on people's adherence, quality of life um, and possibility of relapse. It can also result in, you know, considerable weight gain, increased risk of diabetes. Whereas with dietary intervention, you know, as far as we know, there are no known harms associated with consuming a healthy diet consistent with, say, the Australian Dietary Guidelines. And in fact, you know, you've got benefits for both mental illness and physical health conditions. Absolutely. And just very briefly, Queensland has made some moves in this direction just in the last week or so. Yeah. So um, the Queensland government um, put out a document yeah, this month, um, an inquiry into the opportunities to improve mental health outcomes for Queenslanders. And they've recommended that dietitians integrated into the mental health workforce to provide more holistic care to people experiencing mental and physical comorbidities. And really, um, it's, a, it's a great win. Um, but what we'd hope is that the Queensland government can commit to that recommendation and, and for other states to follow. We'll watch and wait. Thanks, Rochelle. Yes. Fabulous. Thanks, Tegan. Dr. Rochelle Opie is an accredited practicing dietitian specialising in mental health. And about one in 10 Australians have osteoarthritis. It's caused by the wear and tear of the cushioning in your body's joints, and it can be painful to the point of being debilitating. There are no drugs to prevent its progression, which means many people will eventually need a hip or knee replacement. And as the population gets older and heavier, the numbers of those replacements are on the rise in Australia which sounds pretty bleak, doesn't it? But if we could work out who's at greater risk of needing a replacement, maybe doctors could intervene earlier by getting people into lifestyle change treatments like exercise or changing their diet. Flavia Sicatini is trying to better tailor this process. She and her team have developed a risk score to predict how likely someone is to need a joint replacement. She spoke to Health Report producer Diane Dean earlier. Many people will say, oh, you know, my mum had arthritis or whatever. So I think a lot of people have been very aware that arthritis runs in families. So we took the genetic variants that were associated with knee and hip osteoarthritis and created a score for hip disease and one for knee disease. And then in a population of 12,000 people, we looked to see if the people that had a high genetic knee score we're more likely to have had a knee replacement and we did the same for the hip. So we showed that this genetic risk score gave extra information. You could imagine that a person turns up with a sore knee at the age of 40 or 35, there's no other cause found. It's likely that this is early osteoarthritis. For people that might be very interested, they could get their risk score and if it's elevated, they would know that they've got a much higher risk of needing a knee replacement in the future. And it is likely that people will be more motivated to engage in lifestyle changes. But also this is sort of information that we can use in clinical trials. So at the moment, we treat everybody as a one size fits all. But those that have the highest risk score are more likely to progress with their disease. So maybe we should be starting to look at that when we do clinical trials of osteoarthritis as new treatments develop. You know, people with high risk scores maybe should be given the treatments at an earlier stage. Why are there less variants for the knee as opposed to the hip? There's 10 for the knee and 37 for the hip. The knee osteoarthritis has many more different causes and it's much more driven by a lot of environmental factors like physical inactivity, injury, obesity and so on. And 
the hip is much more driven by the shape of the bone. So the hip joint is a ball and socket and any small changes in the shape of the bone mean that the joint doesn't work quite as smoothly and you get an increased risk of developing osteoarthritis sooner and needing a hip replacement. And the shape of the bone is quite strongly driven by genetic factors. A lot of the understanding of risk factors for hip osteoarthritis is actually focusing on the general shape of the whole, the leg bone and the joint itself and how they align. Where it's actually rubbing. Yeah, it ends up rubbing a bit and it's simply because of the shape of the hip versus the knee. The beauty of the risk score is that it will never change because it's based on on your genetic makeup. But for example, if you have someone with a high risk score and someone with a low risk score, if a person gains weight, does the five kilos weight have the same effect on someone with a low risk score or has it a much bigger effect? on the person with a high risk score. Then, of course, we should be pushing even more that people with a high risk score don't gain weight or as new drugs come up provided with those. The genetic risk score you can't change. And so then you say, well, so what? But one, it has the potential of providing a person with more information about their own risk. If you say, well, what can I do? Well, you should avoid gaining weight. You should keep active as we test more drugs and that we should be testing whether there are drugs that might slow things in that particular group. So it's that sort of thing. But there's also the issue of if you have a high risk score, could it be that you do even worse? And so if you're going to spend a lot of time encouraging people to lose weight or you have certain resources, we should really focus on that group. You know, in terms of the so what, access to information on on a person's genetic risk before they develop the disease has the potential that the person might be more likely to engage in preventive strategies. So, for example, if we take obesity, which, you know, we speak about a lot in the context of osteoarthritis, at the moment we tend to focus on people losing weight The problem there is that whatever we do, it might help a bit with pain, but it doesn't reverse the damage that's already happened. You could imagine that a 40-year-old turns up to see you with some symptoms of knee pain, and then commonly that person would be told to lose weight and exercise because many people are already carrying a bit of excess weight. We know that it's very hard for people to get excited and see these things through, but it may be that if you know you have the additional information that your risk is high, then we should, that the person may be more engaged in one, trying to lose weight, but even more importantly, we need to stop people gaining weight. So most of the Australian community continues to relentlessly gain half to one kilo a year. And if we could stop that happening from, you know, middle age to older, it would have a very massive impact on um, knee osteoarthritis and the need for knee replacements, for example. People have to know about the risks before they can 
take this on board? If we run around and ask people, should you lose weight, almost everybody knows they should. But it's very hard to do some of these activities. And so trying to have a plan that is personalised to them, the whole idea of the you know, genetic testing is all part of that same idea. Professor Flavia Sicatini is Head of Rheumatology at the Alfred Hospital and the Musculoskeletal Unit at Monash University in Melbourne. This has been the Health Report for this week, and I'll see you again next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.